listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning, church. You can go ahead and have a seat. It's great to see you, whether you're online or you're in person. Uh, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the leaders here of the White House campus. And thank you so much, worship team, for all the time and energy putting in to lead us this morning. You know, if you were to stop and ask me, what's one of the biggest problems or the biggest dangers that the church faces today? I think I would now say this, that we have lost, or maybe we have lost sight of, who God is. And we have lost sight of who we really are. And I think what happens is when we lose that, it affects every other thing about us, every relationship we live in, everything that goes through our minds, the way we are, everything about us, when we lose sight of who God is and who we are, we're in danger. But the great news is our passage today is going to help us with that. And so I want to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 is a very well-known passage through this book. Uh, most of you have probably memorized verses 8 and 9, and we'll make it through verse 10 today, Lord willing. And so I want to read this for us and pray, and then we'll just walk through it. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in coming ages, he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is truth and that this truth is very practical. You mean for it to build us up in grace, to guide us in life, to change the way we look at the world and even to reorient the direction of our lives. And you mean for it to equip us with every good gift. So by your word of truth, encourage us today. First, in the realization of who you are. And then, oh God, show us how we ought to respond to this truth of who you are and what you have done for us 
in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. You know, words are so powerful. They can encourage. They can tear down. They can build up. They can cause pain. I mean, we use them to communicate what is going on and what we feel and what we need and and desire. And words are powerful. And I think for me, at the top of that list is two words. Two simple words. But I think today we desperately need them and we're going to look at them today. But I want to give you an outline. Here's how I would frame what we're going to see today. We're going to start with who we were in the first three verses. We're going to see what he did, what God did, and then we will see why he did it and how he did it. But I know there's a lot of things you're going to hear this morning, but I hope and pray that this is what you will walk away with today. That you and I, that we cannot outlive our need for mercy or outlast its supply. And you're going to hear me say that several times today. I encourage you to write it down, that we can't outlive our need, meaning we can't be good enough, we can't be perfect enough that we ever get to the place that we don't need God's mercy. And also, we can never be so bad. We can never be so evil. We can never be so sinful that we use up his supply. So let's walk down through these 10 verses together and first to see who we were. It begins in verse 1 again saying, And you, and what he's doing, he's speaking of all humanity. There, there are no exceptions in this. He is talking to everyone, and this is where everyone starts. You were dead in trespasses and sin. We need to understand when he says this phrase, dead in trespasses and sin, it is an absolute statement. Meaning he is not saying you're just in danger of dying, but in a state of spiritual death for all of us in our trespasses and sins. And Paul is very particular of the words he is choosing. He's not saying that we just messed up, we made a mistake, or we're even struggling with. That sin is not something we lapsed into. He says it defined our moment-by-moment existence in our thoughts and words and actions and desires. That Paul is saying we are not healthy people that just trip up and fall. He is saying we are like disease-ridden people from head to toe without a cure. And that's where everyone begins. And we can't do anything about our situation. We can't do anything to prove it. He says we were dead. But our problems run even deeper than that because look at verse 2. He says, In which you once walked, following the course of the world. And he's describing the, the present evil age that they lived in that is carrying on even today. So not only are we sinful, dead people, we are living in a sin-filled world. But that's not our only problem. He goes on. And following the prince of the power of the air, he is describing Satan. He is describing the devil. 
So not only do we live in a sinful world, we're sinful dead people, we follow Satan himself, that we are under his influence, that he is working. Because look at what he says at the end of verse 2. And the spirit, the spirit of Satan, the spirit of the devil, is it now at work in the sons of disobedience. So not only are we sinful dead people living in a sinful world and following Satan himself, his influence is there. We face the evil forces of the world, he says, of Satan and his powerful works. But that's not all. It gets even worse. There's another enemy that we face that isn't the world, it isn't Satan, and it isn't his influence. It's an enemy in all of us because look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. And he's talking about our our sinful nature. I, I would say our internal depravity. That we follow those desires. Those thoughts of our sinful nature, we're always following them. In fact, a person doesn't become a liar because he lies. Do you know why he lies? It's because he's a liar. A person doesn't become a murderer because he kills. He kills because he's already a murderer in his heart. A person doesn't become a thief because he steals. He steals because he's already a thief. And we do not become sinners by sinning. We sin because we are already sinners. And when our flesh is controlled by our sinful nature, those deep desires will always lead to a downward spiral. Because what our sinful nature wants, our sinful nature gets. But then he describes it another way. Carrying out the desires of the body. So we have this internal depravity but we also have this physical depravity. And we are, when we are controlled by our sinful nature, we will always make decisions based on physical priorities. You could throw things in like materialism, being consumed with external beauty, things like lust. But there's another one. So not only do we follow the desires of our body, We follow the desires of our mind. And I would call this the the, uh, mental depravity. When we allow our minds to control us. Things like self-centeredness. Self-deception. Irrational thoughts. I think you could even throw in entitlement. And our minds begin to control us. And the hard thing about these, these are not three independent things that you just need to make sure you watch out for. They're always feeding off of each other and they come together to create a powerful force within a person. So Paul says, not only are we sinful dead people living in a sinful world that is controlled by Satan who uses his power to influence people, we are depraved internally, physically, and mentally. So he's painting this picture that we face an enemy outside in the world. We face an enemy within our own sinful natures and we even face an enemy beyond all of that in Satan himself. And we should think, what is more hopeless than that? So Paul shows us the reality. And we were by nature children of wrath. But this is how we begin. Like the rest 
of mankind. That we're not born okay and then one day blow it. He says we are born into sin and then we continue sinning. Therefore, he says, you are dead and children of wrath. So he wants us to see we're sinful people, dead people living in a sin-filled world that is controlled by Satan, that uses effectively his powerful influence to influence people who are diseased, ridden internally, physically, and mentally. He wants us to understand we are not sick people that just need help. He wants you to realize that we are dead and in need of life. And this picture should paint for us, what can a dead person do? How in the world can a dead person crawl out of a coffin? How can they come out of the grave? And the answer should be absolutely nothing. And Paul says, this is who you were. Every one of us, this is where we begin. And this should bring us feelings of absolute hopelessness. We should feel the weight of the situation and the gravity of our lives. And Paul wants us to sit in that. He wants us to see it. He wants us to feel it. But then we see the two most powerful words we could hear. We're going to see what he did. And it simply says, but God. That God is about to do something. The all-holy, all-powerful, all-knowing God is about to act. And I wanted to say he scooped up all the sinful people, that he crushed Satan, that he set the world right and rid it of sin. But he doesn't. At least not yet. Because God's not done. Because look at what he says. Look at how God acts. Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. He says, but God, rich in mercy. Do you know nowhere else in the scripture does it ever describe God as being rich in anything? The only thing he's ever called rich in is mercy. And so we need to understand in his mercy, he wants us to have this picture of it overflowing, that God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And all of our lives are a draw on that. Think about all the ways you have drawn on God's mercy. Every time we give into the desires of our sinful hearts, we follow Satan, whether that's we lose our temper, we lie, we hurt someone, we're impatient, we gossiped and unclean thought, and we are constantly drawing upon that mercy. But here's the amazing thing. The withdrawals we make as we sin our way through this life cause his fortune of mercy to grow greater, not less. That God's mercy is not like this bank account that's got this certain amount of funds and man, when you mess up and you blow it and you give in to that, all of a sudden you make this huge withdrawal. Imagine all of us now doing that. That his supply would ever decrease. And how is that? It's because God doesn't just have mercy. He is mercy. It is who he is at his core. Because if mercy is just something God supplies to his people, one day it would have a limit and it would run out. And so I want to camp here for 
just a moment, and I want to point out two things. The first thing is this, is our need for mercy. That Christ was not sent just to fix wounded people or to wake sleepy people up or even advise confused people or inspire bored or spur on lazy or even educate ignorant people. But he came to raise dead people to life. And we need to understand who we were. We're not good people that just messed up. We're not well-intended people that just make mistakes. We're not strong people that just struggle with something. We are disease-ridden from head to toe. We don't just occasionally slip up into those passions of our flesh. We lived in those passions. And we not only lived in sin, we enjoyed living in it. That's what we wanted to do. But I think some of us might be thinking, well, that just, that doesn't describe me. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home and we always went to church. I'm in church now and I serve and I give and I love doing things for other people. But look again at verse 3. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Because remember who is writing this. This is Paul. This is the Hebrew of Hebrews. The former Pharisee with zeal, it says. The keeper of the law. That he was better than anyone at it. In fact, he says under the law, he was righteous. But the truth is, we can live out our fleshly passions by breaking all the rules. And we can also live out our fleshly passions by trying to keep all the laws. Because we can't outlive our need for mercy. You'll never be able to do it. You can't and I can't be good enough and we will never outlast its supply. But here's the second thing. How do we experience mercy? We need to know that God doesn't meet us halfway. His very nature is to engage death and to bring life. He is going to come at it head on. But there's two problems with this. Because I think we can ask this. When we look at our lives. And you know the things that have gone on. I think we can feel like God's mercy has just passed us over. Maybe you've been deeply mistreated. Maybe gravely misunderstood. You've been by, betrayed by someone that. You thought you could trust. You've been abandoned in some way. Taken advantage of. And perhaps you're carrying a pain that you do not feel will ever go away until you're dead. And when you look at your life, you might be thinking, if this is God's mercy, I'm not impressed. But I think there's a second problem. I think we have a difficulty receiving God's mercy, not because of what others have done for us or done to us, but because of what we have done to torpedo our own lives. Maybe it was through one big, stupid, sinful decision, or maybe it was through a thousand little ones. So whether you find yourself in one of those problems or perhaps both, I want to say God is rich in mercy. He's not tight-fisted. 
He's open-handed. He's not frugal. He's lavish. He is not poor. He is rich. Because we can't outlive our need for mercy, and you can never do anything to outlast its supply. But I wonder, church, do we realize the power of these words? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You know what that should mean for us? It means this, that where we find, where we are, it means where our deepest regrets live, maybe. That is where God will already be waiting to extend his mercy. It means our haunting shame, it's not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves to work in the most. It means our sin doesn't cause his love to take a hit. It means our sin calls his love to search forward more and more. But we're not done with the good news yet. Because notice where we see his riches and mercy and his great love toward us. Look at verse 5. It isn't when you get it all together. It isn't even when you finally come to your senses. It even isn't when you admit what is going on? It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When you were dead, that is where God loves to move. He takes sinful people living in the desires of their flesh in a sinful world ruled by Satan, and he makes them alive. And it says, by his grace. And you know this, we can never be good enough or even so good that we don't need it. And we can never be so bad that he won't give it. And he says he saved us. And this is one of the things that I think we can easily miss. It's a word you've heard. It's a word you've read. It's a word you have seen over and over. But this word saved is a big word. In fact, notice the tense of this word. He says, when you were dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And notice the past tense. Because Paul is showing them where they were. And notice what God did. He saved them. And we need to understand something here. It's not just something that God did in the past. Because when you look at the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to what he says about it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You notice now it's a present tense. It's an ongoing thing that we are even being saved now. In fact, what he means right now, in this moment... The Holy Spirit is still keeping me from cursing and denouncing God. That he's continuing to grant me the faith to believe and to trust. But Paul says one more thing in Romans 13. Verse 11, he says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And this is a future 
clause that salvation is nearer to me now than when I first believed. Meaning there is a part of my salvation that I've not yet even experienced. So not only was I saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. But I think often the times where my mind will go is, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. How secure can that salvation really be? How confident can I be in that? Because look at verse 6. Look at what he does through the salvation, through being saved. And he raised us up with him, past tense, and seated us with him, past tense, in the heavenly places with Christ. And Paul is saying what is true of Christ is also true of us. And then I read something this week that just stopped me in my tracks. A guy named Dan Ortland said this. For God to de-resurrect you, to bring his mercy to an end, Jesus Christ himself would have to be sucked down from heaven and put back in the tomb of Joseph. That that is how safe and secure we are. So who we were, what he did, and look at verse 7, why he did it. So at, at in, so at in the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we're not saved because we deserve it. We're not saved because we earn it. We're not even saved for the good that we might even accomplish one day. He says, we are saved so that God, or because he wants to do something. He says he wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Because you know what? God could have shown it in a thousand ways. But he's wanting to do it, I believe, in the messiest way possible. So how he did it, probably the most famous verse in Ephesians. Here it is. How did he do it? For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not of works so that no one may boast. So by grace, through faith, and it is the gift. Meaning all of the process of salvation from beginning to end, past, present, and future. Paul says all of it is a gift. And why would he do it? It's because God has a goal. God has a plan. And he shows you what it is in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because you know what you are? You know what I am? We're like pieces of art. We're like pieces of art and Every one of us is working to make our lives into these pictures that other people like, that other people admire, that other people will accept, and if we're really honest, that other people would even want. And that's the picture that, that we are trying to paint. That's what we want people to see. But the problem is we're often painting pictures that only draw attention to us. And these pictures that we are painting, they're filled with flaws and regrets and mistakes and all kinds of imperfections. 
And when we stand back, we realize that all that we are doing, they're marred with shame and guilt and humiliation. The truth is, we are designed to be pictures of his mercy and love, not ours. That draw attention to our artist, not us. He says, we are his masterpiece. That God is creating something beautiful and valuable. And one day, these will all be on display for the world to see. So I want us to take this away today. We can't outlive our need for mercy. And we can't outlast its supply. You and I, we could never be good enough that we get to the place that we don't need his mercy. And we can never be so bad. We can never be so evil. We can never be so sinful that we use up God's supply of mercy. So for whatever you're facing today, or whatever you might be facing in the future. When we have difficulty receiving God's mercy, maybe because of what others have done for us, or because of what we have done, remember those two words, but God. And preach them to yourself over and over and over again. And remind yourself that you cannot outlive your need for His mercy and you can never outlast its supply. Church, let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.